Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. As the Gulf of Maine warms, lobster and other species are expected to migrate north. One lobsterman is diversifying to oysters, so his kids have options in the future. Hopefully lo- the lobster resource will still be strong, you know, when, when they grow up and, and that will be there and that will be an option, but there's certainly no guarantee that's the case. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. Climate change isn't just forcing marine species to migrate. People are leaving for safer ground, too. Sitting there and listening to that rain after about four days, I just thought, if this is a taste of what's to come, I'd like to be somewhere where it happens less often. We'll hear from a climate migrant. And retailers react to a state ban on vaping products. Why don't they go to liquor stores and ban raspberry mango vodka? If this is doing harm to you, they cannot say that alcohol isn't doing harm to you. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. This year, more than a dozen New Englanders have been infected with a mosquito-borne illness. It's called Eastern Equine Encephalitis, or Triple E. For most people who get infected with this virus, they may have a very mild illness or one that doesn't even uh, come to their attention. Dr. Richard Martinello is from the Yale School of Medicine. Um, But for a small percent of people who get infected with this virus, they could have a very severe Uh, infection of their brain uh, that leads to what we call encephalitis, where the actual tissue of their brain is infected uh, by the virus, and that can very quickly lead to them uh, becoming very confused in addition to having a fever and a headache and very rapidly progress uh, to even death. And we see that about uh, 30 to 70 percent of people who develop a brain infection due to this virus uh, will die. And those un- uh, who survive, unfortunately, oftentimes have very significant uh, neurologic problems uh, that may be, even be lifelong. So far, fatal cases have been reported in Massachusetts, Connecticut and Rhode Island. Health officials say the only way to make sure you don't get Tripoli is don't get bit by a mosquito. They've launched a multi-state information program that's shown up on highway billboards. And schools around the region have changed their sports schedules to keep people inside during the dusk hours when mosquitoes are active. If you contract Tripoli, there's no cure, but a vaccine does exist. As WBUR's Angus Chen reports, it's not widely available. In the 1970s, the United States military began developing vaccines to protect military personnel from dangerous pathogens. Sam Telford is an epidemiologist at Tufts University. He says one of those vaccines was for Triple E. As a graduate student, I received that vaccine. Triple E is a mosquito-borne illness that's rare but causes death in about a third of people who develop it. Telford says the Triple E vaccine was made available in the 1980s to certain people in the military, and some researchers like himself. 
But he says the Food and Drug Administration put a stop to that. The FDA slapped the military uh, for running uh, essentially unregulated clinical trials. So now Telford says if you want to get the triple E vaccine, you have to go to an Army Research Institute, enroll in the clinical trial, and pay for it. And there are other reasons why the vaccine isn't practical for most people, says Mark Fisher, an epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The protection is very short-lived, so people need to receive the vaccine multiple times over years in order to maintain protection. And that's another reason why at least that current vaccine would not really be useful for use in a general population. It's unlikely that a human vaccine will ever become widely available. That's because vaccines have to go through rigorous trials. And Telford says that's just too expensive for an illness as rare as triple E. A company would, could not be in their right mind if they wanted to invest 150 to $200 million to uh, run through clinical, clinical trials and get FDA registration for the sale of a triple E vaccine. But it's a lot easier to get an animal vaccine approved. There's a horse vaccine available for about $50. Nancy Dubin is a horse farmer in Holliston. She gives it to her horses every year. It's not always effective, though. Last month, one of her horses got triple E, even though he was vaccinated. Bruin was very young and did not have enough antibodies built up from the vaccine. Um, so it was, it was definitely a very sad day. After three days, Bruin became seriously ill. He was walking into walls and stuff, yeah. so it was definitely affecting his, his brain. And he died. Triple E, even though it's rare, can be deadly to both humans and horses. Tufts' Sam Telford says the risk of the illness will persist until a hard frost kills off mosquitoes that can carry the virus. There's plenty of potential for people getting uh, infected by either West Nile virus or, or Eastern Equine Encephalitis. Uh, probably for another three weeks. Until then, he says people should wear mosquito repellent whenever going outside, even during the daytime. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Angus Chen. The other big health news of the week is the move by states to ban some or all e-cigarettes as public health officials investigate a potentially fatal illness linked to vaping. New York banned the sale of flavored vaping products aimed at teens because, as Governor Andrew Cuomo says, states have to do something. The vaping issue is real and it's frightening. You have hundreds of people all across this country who've gotten ill. You have young people who are dying. Uh, so what do we do about that? Uh, the federal government is doing nothing. What can we do? And what can we do together? Because uh, it makes no sense to pass one set of rules in New York when they can just drive across the border to Connecticut and have a different set of rules and vice versa. And that press conference was in Connecticut with Governor Ned Lamont, who doesn't have a ban in the works. Meanwhile, Rhode Island's Governor Gina Raimondo banned the flavored products this week. I have come to the conclusion that this is a public health crisis for our children. If you look at the way these flavored products are marketed, this is targeted at kids, our kids. But none of the states go as far as Massachusetts, which has prohibited the sale of all e-cigarettes and vaping devices for at least the next four months. That includes marijuana products, which are otherwise legal in the state. That concerns Mark Satira of INSA, which operates two dispensaries. 
He's worried about what medical marijuana customers will end up doing because of the ban. I would think a lot of them are going to end up having to turn to the black market, and that's where the majority, possibly almost all of the, the cases seem to be coming from are, are black market products. So my worry is that we're going to see an increase in people getting sick as a result of this ban. But the ban could have the biggest impact on retailers who are complaining they're being put out of business with no prior warning. WBUR's Zenindror and Wameka reports. Pete Patel was excited about his new business venture. But just a few months in, that excitement has now turned to disappointment. It's totally disaster for us, you know, for our whole industry. Now we have to close down. That's because of a new state ban on vaping products. Patel owns Liquid Smoke and Vape Shop in Alston. He opened just six months ago. His shop is lined with vaping products. Patel says they account for 60 to 70 percent of his total sales. Without those sales, he says his business just can't survive. Everything's like now is, is zero values, you know what I'm saying? Everything is zero value for four months and we're going to lose money, everything. So like totally, totally disaster right now. I don't know what you're going to say. The ban on vaping products came down with no prior notice, catching Patel and some of his customers off guard. Can I get the um, mint jewel pods? The last time you can get it. It's the last time we can get it. Nothing after these are sold? No. The ban comes in response to a wave of lung illnesses and even some deaths related to vaping products across the country. There have been some illnesses in Massachusetts, but no deaths. Governor Charlie Baker has declared a public health emergency and says the temporary ban will give officials time to gather more information about what's causing these health issues. E-cigarette usage is exploding and it's clear there's a very real danger to the population. This temporary ban will allow state government and medical providers the time they need to understand the dangers and respond accordingly. Some business owners say they understand the health concerns, but the state should figure out exactly what is going on before banning everything. It makes me angry. It does. It makes me angry because they're hurting small businesses, which are 21 plus. Kathy McCarthy is the store manager at Fast Eddie's Smoke Shop in Alston. Why don't they go to liquor stores and ban raspberry mango vodka? They can't say, if, any, if this is doing harm to you, they cannot say that alcohol isn't doing harm to you. That's proven. That's a proven fact. McCarthy says she wants more regulations, such as restricting vaping products to stores that are only open to people over 21, like hers. Shalene Title of the state's Cannabis Control Commission also wants more regulation. Title warns the outright ban on vaping products will just push people to the black market. We need to regulate the product, how it's made, what it's containing, based on the evidence that we're getting about what's making people sick. To remove the ability to regulate it now and purposely push people into the unregulated market where the dangerous products are, that goes against public health. Many local health organizations are welcoming the governor's move. The Massachusetts Medical Society says the lack of certainty as to why some of our patients have become so seriously ill underscores the urgent need for intervention. The ban is scheduled to be lifted in late January. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka.
Municipal corruption is nothing new for New England cities and towns. Connecticut and Rhode Island in particular have had their fair share of mayors who faced corruption charges and even spent some time in prison. But the recent corruption scandal in Fall River, Massachusetts, takes it to the next level. Earlier this month, Mayor Jaisal Correa was charged with extortion, among a slew of other crimes. City Council tried to kick him out of office, but Correa has refused. Nadine Sabai of The Publix Radio is here to fill us in. Nadine, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. Let's start with these corruption charges. What exactly do prosecutors allege that Jaisal Correa did? So federal officials arrested Correa on a total of 24 counts for allegedly extorting marijuana vendors for cash and also uh, milking investors from an app he started before he was elected to office. The charges include multiple counts of wire fraud, filing false tax returns, extortion, and bribery. Um, He was first arrested last October for the app he started. It was called Snow Owl. Federal officials allege that he stole over $230,000 of investor money. Um, That's about 64% of the money that he raised um, from investors. And Allegedly, he spent it on Mercedes, lavish trips, casinos, and adult entertainment. And he also used ten, allegedly used $10,000 of that money to pay down his student loan debt. Um, the new arrest involves allegedly extorting marijuana vendors uh, for cash and, and sometimes in the form of, of uh, 12 to 15 pounds of marijuana. Um, so those are the two charges, which, of course, Korea denies all of those charges against him. Tell us a bit more about this mayor. Who exactly is he and and what's his background? So uh, Correa joined city council the last year of his college, when he was in college at Providence College. Um, And a year or so later, he was elected mayor at 23 years old. That makes him the youngest ever elected mayor in the city. And he's also the first mayor um, of Cape Verdean descent. And of course, uh, Fall River has a huge Cape Verdean population, Portuguese population. And so that was a really big deal. He was this, you know, young, fresh face coming in um, to change the city that has been going through so much like many former industrial towns. As I mentioned at the top, there are many instances of of mayors or public officials at the municipal level who face corruption charges. And, and generally speaking, if they've been arrested or they've been forced out of office, they may fight the legal charges in court, but they but they leave office. They they don't continue to do the job. But he's he's refusing to resign. He's he's still sticking around. What's he saying uh, as to why? So in in Correa's eyes, he's done nothing wrong. So why would he resign? But I also think um, from times that I've spoken with him and, um, you know, kind of being around in, in, in Fall River and with city councilors is that there's a major power struggle here between Correa and the city council that tried to oust him. And so in my view, it's more of a of an attempt to fight against the city council that's trying to bring him down and prove that he can surpass anything. One of the most amazing parts of this story, Nadine, is that in the middle of all this is an election. I'm wondering if you can talk about that. How many people voted for him and and what are voters saying about that election? Um, in this preliminary election that, that just passed, uh, essentially it was three candidates, Jaisal Correa, school committee member Paul Coogan, and Erica Scott Pacheco. Um, and this preliminary election was supposed to decide who the top two vote getters were that would make it to the general election. So the results were interesting, but to some may not have been surprising. Uh, Paul Coogan was the top winner. He got 62% of the vote. And Jaisal Correa made it into the top two, but only 
with just 21% of the vote. So just to put that in perspective, like in terms of what that may mean for the general election, um, this preliminary election, over 13,000 voters went to the polls. That's more than the last two preliminary elections, which may essentially it puts Paul Coogan in the lead in this race. So he may be in the lead in this race, and and this may mean that that Correa is going to be out of office after a general election anyway. But what what do voters tell you about why they're still supporting a twice-arrested mayor? So supporters say that he's done really good things for the city. Um, They believe in his charm in his, uh, you know, appeared sincerity to the community. He is a person who is very forward facing. So he visits all the senior centers in Fall River and gives roses to the elderly and gives free lunches uh, to people who are generally not listened to. He he is he he prides himself in knowing everyone in the community by for, on a first name basis, and so there's kind of this this weird uh, dichotomy between the person that's been arrested twice and the person that is just so genuinely nice to and and giving and um, you know charming to the supporters that love him, and so. That is what I've been hearing a lot of times. And also the other thing that I've been hearing a lot of um, from many of the supporters that I spoke to is that Korea is innocent until proven guilty. And they believe that he's innocent. And until proven otherwise, they don't see why he should step down, why he can't be mayor, and why the city council should be justified in ousting him. So Nadine, what happens next in the story? What's the next thing we should be looking for? Okay, so Korea um, was supposed to be arraigned um, in federal court on October 2nd. But uh, just this week, he requested to have his attorney um, enter his plea on his behalf instead of him appearing there. So that'll be interesting to see what happens next. Um, Also, uh, the Fall River City Council filed its own lawsuit against Jaisal Correa, um, essentially trying to fight um, his refusal to step down from office, even though the city council voted on an eight to one vote to remove him. So that's in that's in the process and in the works. And next month there there will be a hearing on that. Um, and then, of course, the general election is in the midst of all this. Um, on November 5th, voters will go to the polls and decide whether or not Paul Coogan or Jaisal Correa will be their next mayor. If he's convicted on on any of these charges, what sort of jail time does he face? He faces up to 20 years in prison for each of the nine wire fraud charges and up to three years each on the charges of filing false tax returns. Nadine Sabai of The Public's Radio has been following the story for us. Nadine, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. It was great. About two hours away in Bridgeport, Connecticut, another mayor is on the hot seat. Incumbent Mayor Joe Gannam narrowly won the Democratic primary election by about 300 votes earlier this month. But a closer look at election results points to possible absentee ballot fraud. Hearst Connecticut Media Group began investigating. Reporter Ken Dixon says they started by going door to door to talk to absentee voters. Uh, some people said, you know, they were they were Gannam supporters. They appreciated getting the ballots. Other people said that they were being coerced to um, support Gannam. They're, intimidation. He says they found people who had voted but were not listed in the state registry of voters. One voter voted a couple of times. And people on parole who couldn't legally vote. More than a decade ago, Mayor Gannon was arrested on multiple corruption charges and sent to prison for seven years. 
But after he was released, Bridgeport residents voted him into office for a second time. He uh, convinced people to have uh, another crack at it, and he, he won the primary four years ago and is going for a second four-year term here. Despite the mayor's past history, Dixon says Ganim's not suspected of absentee ballot fraud. It's just part of the long-standing political system in the city of Bridgeport. Now, the State Elections Enforcement Commission has opened an investigation, but Dixon says it's not likely anything will be resolved before the November general election. He says Ganim's challenger, State Senator Marilyn Moore, who lost the primary, probably won't get on the ballot. If people want to vote for Moore, well, they're going to have to write her name in themselves. Coming up, we'll meet a climate change migrant who left hurricane-torn Houston, Texas for Maine. We'll also look at how Maine's marine economy can thrive as the ocean warms and lobsters head north. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. As the effects of climate change become more and more real, some people are leaving their homes for safer, less volatile ground. Alexander Parsons is one of those climate migrants. He lived in Houston with his wife and kids. Then after Hurricane Harvey, they started to talk about leaving. This July, they packed up and they moved to Maine. He wrote about this move in the Boston Globe. Alex Parsons is a writer and professor at the University of Houston, and he joins us from the studios of Maine Public Radio. Alex, thanks for joining us and welcome to New England. It's a real pleasure on both counts, John. Well, first of all, describe where you lived in Texas. What was it like? Well, Houston is a delightful city. I think that it doesn't comport with most of the stereotypes about it. Uh, socially, it is ideal. Um, it is a huge, thriving metropolis. Uh, and we moved there in 2007. So we've been out there 12 years. And in that time, we had three kids. What was it about Texas life and life in Houston that, that maybe you didn't like so much? Well, I, I will say that uh, you pick up a lot about climate change incrementally. It's sort of like the rising temperature of water and you're sitting in it and at a certain point it becomes, I think, unbearable. And the first year I really noticed it in Houston was a spell of about 90 days where the heat index was 90 degrees or above. And what I noticed was how few birds I felt I was seeing outside, how few squirrels. And at the same time, um, I'd been working on a book that was set in Antarctica. And so I was reading a lot about glacial melt. And uh, it seemed to me that this was becoming a defining reality of our lives. And even if we didn't feel it immediately, or rather you could go into air conditioning and ignore how hot it was outside, it was, beginning, it was going to become more and more pressing. And that, in addition to the general pressures of life in a large city, um, the kind of energy it takes, um, particularly when you're raising three children and you don't really have family support, and we just took a look at each other and said, all right, maybe we can rethink the math on this. How can we live a sort of happier existence and also give the kids some sense of the outdoors. There was also this event when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston hard. It seemed like it was a tipping point for your family. What, what was it like just uh, during and after that hurricane? Well, the rainfall is, is hard to quantify. And I think this is what put everybody on edge. And certainly it's what changed my mind about how the world as I knew it 
functions as opposed to how perhaps it used to function. Um, if, you, if you think that in, in places, 60 inches of rain fell on Houston, um, that translates to something like 65 feet of snow, just to, just to give a scale that maybe people in New England might appreciate a little more. And so watching this water cascade, manhole covers you know, had popped off and water is, is geysering out of them, and this is in a 500-2,000 year floodplain. And we were very lucky to be on a ridge in the Houston Heights, which is, I thought it was ironically named, but it is 28 feet above sea level. And so uh, we didn't end up flooding out, though a lot of water did get under the house. And that amount of rain, you know, it caused all of the boards and the porch to buckle. And we were incredibly lucky. But sitting there um, and listening to that rain after about four days, um, I just thought, what I understand about the world doesn't hold anymore. And if this is a taste of what's to come, I'd like to be somewhere where it happens less often. So you take all these things into account and you start to look around to see where, where are you going to move. So take us through that process when you, when you said, we're going to leave Houston, we're going to go someplace else that provides a bit better for, for our family and a better opportunity away from some of the impacts of climate change. Where did you start looking and what factors were you taking into account? Well, the biggest factor is probably my wife, if I'm going to be honest here. And <laughs> she loves uh, New England. Uh, she lived out in New Hampshire for about a year and a half um, when I was teaching at the University of New Hampshire. Um, I was less partial to one particular area. So we, we looked at uh, the West Coast, but of course, <laughs> the news there is also fairly grim. And then you get to throw in, you know, huge earthquakes the uh, the South uh, seemed like more of the same, to be honest, in terms of hurricanes and heat. Uh, we looked at uh, the Midwest. Duluth is the most weatherproofed uh, city, I believe, in, in the U.S. Um, but as my wife pointed out after I made the case for Duluth in terms of fresh water and geologically stable and inland and so on and so forth, she said, yes, but it's Duluth and I don't want to live in Duluth. So there's no gainsaying that. So, you know, we looked uh, in the Northeast and uh, I had always liked Maine and we agreed that it would be a good place in terms of being able to either continue our jobs or, or transfer them uh, in terms of the quality of education and in terms of generally the natural environment. And it seemed more stable. And this is not to say climate change isn't affecting Maine by any means, um, but it didn't seem like we were in the middle of the bowling alley for the hurricanes. Hmm. Well, I, and I want to ask you about that. So first of all, where did you end up? Where in Maine did you decide to settle? Well, we looked around. We looked at uh, really the southern coastal area of Maine, um, Falmouth and Yarmouth and Portland and Cape Elizabeth. I didn't really want my kids, I have to admit, to be the yachtsmen. That, that to me had a, a few too many uh, maybe class connotations. So I'm not sure. Nothing <laughs> against yachtsmen in general. It's a great sport. So we, we ultimately decided on Cape Elizabeth because it has open areas of land, and yet it's also somewhat urban. And having come from Houston, we came to appreciate things like fine dining and strip malls, and uh, we'd like to continue some of that, even if you don't really have strip malls on par with Houston strip malls. <laughs> uh, I, I should say, though, and you've already alluded to this, that a place like Cape Elizabeth in Maine is not immune from the effects of, of climate change. We have hurricanes here, not as, as often. We have storm surge. An awful lot of the coastline of all of New England is under threat of severe flooding. 
And you know what? We've got a lot more 90-degree days in a row than we used to. So, you know, sometimes you have a pretty hot summer, too. As you considered this, did you consider the fact that, you know, Maine isn't necessarily the perfect destination to get away from all the impacts of climate change? Well, yes, we live in an imperfect world, but uh, I can guarantee you my math skills are not terribly strong. However, I do know I will experience fewer 90-degree days here (laughs) than I did in Houston and probably fewer 120-degree days as well. Um, And yes, I, I think storms are a part of life and more storms will be a part of life. But I did look at the topography along the coast and uh, made sure that when we looked to settle, we could find a place on relatively high ground, which we've done. Now, right now, I resent the climb on my bike or hiking up the steps of the house. But in the long term, I think uh, it's probably good for my, for my sanity. And I don't, I don't want to give this notion that um, I'm some sort of paranoid. I, I, I guess the point I'd make is that if, if somebody like me is starting to think about climate change, it's probably fairly serious as a broad phenomenon. And I think we're going to see an increase in, in domestic migration uh, in the U.S. because of it. I think it's happening in a lot of other places. And, you know, when we, when we talk about immigration more broadly in this country, um, usually it seems to get overlooked that uh, a lot of people are climate refugees. Uh, they're subsistence farmers coming up from Central and South America who've been displaced. And, you know, my feeling is they're not unusual in terms of what they want um, or insofar as they're being affected by a changing climate. Uh, I just happen to be much sort of more fortunate by accident of birth in terms of being able to to migrate domestically in the U.S. And that's what I'd like to ask you about is, is how you and your family has grappled with or talked about the idea that you are indeed very fortunate. It's a it's an interesting story. And it, it points to uh, a, a countervailing trend uh, against out-migration from New England. You know, our states have been losing population to the south where people say the weather's warmer and the taxes are lower and, and, they, and they want to, to go that direction. And, and you're coming north, which sounds like a good New England story. But I don't know, Alex, an awful lot of people can't afford to make some of the choices that, that, that you've made. How have, have you grappled with that idea that, that you are so fortunate and so many others can't escape? Well, I mean, I carry around a requisite amount of guilt over circumstance, as I think many um, people do. Uh, our family is Catholic, so we carry lots and lots of guilt. We can share some if you'd like. Uh, I'll, I'll send, I'll send I, you a few buckets. I, I've uh, got my own. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I think going forward, um, I also, I've told my children that climate change is going to be the clarion call of their generation. They will spend much of their lives engaged with it, and I think working to ameliorate it. And I think it's very easy to um, get depressed about it or say there's nothing we can do um, or simply just feel guilty because you're less impacted by it than others. But I, my hope is that while it's here and it's going to be bad, um, it's, a, it's a kind of global consciousness that will develop and that we will come together. It may be last minute. It may be sloppy. Um, certainly, there'll be a huge amount of damage done to the earth. But I would rather remain optimistic than pessimistic. Alex Parsons is a professor at the University of Houston. He's a a climate migrant. He wrote about his journey for the Boston Globe. Thanks so much for joining us here on Next. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure. Alex Parsons may have fled to Maine to avoid devastating hurricanes in the south, but Maine is not immune to climate change. Waters in the Gulf of Maine are warming faster than almost anywhere on the planet, and the species that flourish in the future will be those that can adapt. Same might be said for people who make their living from the sea. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports. 
A little over a year ago, I visited a small estuary on the far side of Shabig Island, where lobsterman Jeff Putnam was working on a little side business. These are oysters that I started just this year. Putnam established his oyster farm to add a new revenue stream to his business, and he says provide future options for his children. Hopefully lo- the lobster resource will still be strong, you know, when, when they grow up and and that will be there and that will be an option, but there's certainly no guarantee that's the case. So I wanted to show them there is another way to, to make a living. With the state's lobster harvest now appearing to fall off from recent record levels, I called Jeff to see how the oysters are coming along. It's going well. I've sold some to a a local fish market here in Yarmouth, Days Seafood. I love it. I really do. Yeah, it's awesome. That puts him in a small but growing phalanx of lobstermen trying out new ways to preserve a career and culture amid change that scientists say is well underway in the Gulf of Maine. Researchers say warming water temperatures projected over the next 30 years could reduce the Gulf's lobster population by as much as 60 percent as it shifts northward to cooler waters. That worst-case scenario would knock the main harvest down to levels seen back in the late 1990s or early 2000s. It's still better than in earlier decades, but nowhere near the monster halls of the past 10 years. And it's not just lobster that will be edging out of the picture. We expect to see quite substantial declines in a number of ground fish species like cod, haddock, pollock. So the species that have typically formed the base of many of our fisheries in this region. That's Kathy Mills, a scientist at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. She's modeling what will happen to more than 50 Atlantic marine species in the Gulf by 2055 and what that could mean for ports up and down the coast, from Point Judith, Rhode Island, to Stonington, Maine. How that relates to their current dependence on fisheries. Um, What are they currently harvesting? How will they be affected by these changes? And also what new species may be moving in that provide new opportunities in the future. Take Stonington, the unrivaled king of the lobster boom. The port's 250-plus fishermen this decade routinely brought in more than $40 million worth a year. Mills says early runs of her models predict that the lobster population near Stonington could drop off by some 20 percent. Other fisheries, such as herring and halibut, will also decline. And assuming the lobstermen stick to their habitual ways of fishing, profits could fall by more than half. That could lead to exits from the fishing business, consolidation, and financial disaster for fishermen with big loans on their boats. But there will be other opportunities as more southerly species follow the warming temperatures up the coast. Black sea bass and squid, those are consistently increasing. Scup, butterfish, and potentially some of the crab species, so like rock crabs, for example. Warming waters are also expected to expand the range of some aquaculture crops, including oysters and quahogs, although problematic predators such as the invasive green crab are benefited as well. Mill says that if fishing communities like Stonington play it right, aggressively adapting to the ecosystem shifts, profits, in many cases, can stay near the levels seen through the boom years this decade. And some lobstermen in Stonington are already on board. So one of the things that I've been thinking about for quite a few years is squid. Stonington lobsterman Genevieve McDonald says that back in 2012, when the Gulf hit new records for warm temperatures, long-fid squid suddenly turned up in abundance. So now she's thinking about how to take advantage of that, about what type of gear and infrastructure she would need to catch squid 
and get them to market. She says her husband's family still has an ice house they once used for preserving ground fish, such as cod, back before those fisheries crashed. And so you actually might be going back to what will at that point be historical knowledge. And so when you start talking about black sea bass or squid, you're no longer dealing with a live product. So you go back to icing fish and shipping them to New York or Boston. Another key issue is getting permission to fish for squid, sea bass, and other emerging species. In federal waters, three miles and more offshore, fisheries are ruled by federal quotas, and it may be difficult to get Rhode Island, for instance, to give up quota so that Mainers can capture a new share of squid. McDonald, who is also a state representative on the legislature's Marine Resources Committee, says Maine fishermen should first focus on inshore waters and encourage state managers to start designing regulations for emerging fisheries. Because it's not your grandfather's fishery anymore. You're, we're really hitting a point where if you want to succeed, you're going to have to be involved in management and you're going to have to know what's coming. But while lobster harvesters like McDonald are thinking ahead, many remain focused on the fishery they know. And Carla Gunther, chief scientist at the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries in Stonington, cautions that all the hype about long-term lobster decline is leaving some fishermen feeling helpless. Just pounding in the press about how climate change is going to threaten the lobster fishery, it's paralyzing. For these guys, it's like getting a diagnosis that your kid has cancer. Still, she notes that fishermen in general are natural entrepreneurs and adept at going after different species when necessary. Right out her dockside window, she says lobstermen are re-rigging their boats to take advantage of the area's growing scallop fishery. There are successes. There are diversification options. Is it going to be for all 4,500 4, lobster license holders? No, but we've got to start thinking something. And as, as long as we're thinking creatively about how we can achieve diversification, that's going to be what we can survive on. Jeff Putnam, the Shabig lobsterman experimenting with oysters, is firmly, if cautiously, on that path. I don't plan to expand too much with just oysters. I plan to look into the kelp business a little bit. And Putnam says he'll keep on lobstering full-time year-round. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. Coming up, an odd road sign and the search for its meaning. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. You ever come across a road name that just makes no sense? And you think, hmm, where'd that come from? For instance, on the way to the beach, I always drive by a sign for Roast Mead Hill Road in Killingworth, Connecticut. 
For a listener to the podcast Brave Little State, it was a road in Vermont. He wrote, For the love of God, please tell me the origin of Putney's high-low bitty road. Producer Bianca Gaver started her quest for the origin at the Breadloaf School of English in Ripton, Vermont. This is a place where people think about words all day. Um, so I'm excited to see if they have any thoughts about high-low bitty. Everyone's noses aren't books right now. Hello. Hi. I'm doing a story about the history of Vermont road signs, and I got assigned high-low bitty road, and I'm just wondering, do you have any guesses about what that might mean, high-low bitty? I don't know why I think this, but I feel like it might have something to do with a cow. My first thought was about like a dance, kind of like a ditty, but now that I'm thinking about it, it's kind of like little bitty. Um, yeah. Like a little bit of a ditty. Like a little bitty ditty. Maybe it's a person. Um, Who is the person? Hello, Bitty Road. Oh, like first name, high, low, middle name, Bitty, last name, Road? Yeah. <laughs> I walked across campus to see if there were any more clues here about high, low, Bitty. I'm going to the adorable library. It's a white house filled with books. They happen to have the Vermont road name book. Vermont Place Names by Esther Swift. It didn't talk about Hilo Biddy Road, but it did talk about Biddy Knob in Rutland County. Oh, okay, okay, oh, okay. Biddy Knob is a peak more than 2,000 feet high. No one can explain the origin of its name. Biddy means a chicken or a hen. The word can also be a diminutive of the girl's name, Bridget and it is sometimes used as a disparaging slang term for women, which is still the case. You call biddies as a slang term for like girls who play lacrosse and wear pearl earrings. But that's what it was for me in college. Okay, so that remains a mystery. I did some more research about the definition of biddy in the dictionary and on the internet. A woman, especially an elderly one, regarded as annoying or interfering. Early 17th century, originally denoting a chicken, of unknown origin, denoting an Irish maidservant. In Australia, a biddy is a two-for-one McDonald's voucher, usually entitles the bear to enjoy two delicious Big Macs for the price of one. A biddy is one of those girls who wears short skirts and very high heels in very cold weather. So Biddy could be a chicken, a girl named Bridget, or a woman. And as Paul Gillis, our intrepid road expert, told Angela, High lows, Biddy was the name of a very famous harness horse that was born in 1953, sired by Holyrood Hermes, which was a, a famous uh, stud horse, and uh, got a reputation as a trotter. So was, was the horse, you know, pastured there, or was it born there? I don't know. A horse? I clearly had a lot of work to do. My next step was to see the high-low bitty road for myself. So I drove to Putney, singing a song I made up along the way. High-low bitty, 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 high-low bitty, bitty, high-low bitty road. High-low bitty, 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 high-low bitty. There I met Michael, the question asker. My name is Michael Hudson. Uh, we're in my home in Putney, Vermont. And my question is who or what was the high-low bitty and why did they name a road after he, she, or it. It doesn't make sense to me, you know? Like somebody said, oh, I know what we're gonna call this road. 
the high-low bitty road. And somebody else said, yeah, that's a good idea. We walked out of his house, turned right, and within 100 yards, we were on high-low bitty. Here's the, this is the road? This is it. This is barely a road. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, so there's a dead-end sign. It's unpaved. It's gravelly. It's very overgrown. Oh, yeah. There aren't many homes down here. So right now we're going low bitty, we're walking downhill. Well, I don't know, this might be high over here. Whoever thought of it, I mean, it is very fun to say. Oh, it is fun to say. It really is. High low bitty runs alongside a brook called Sackett's Brook. In the late 1700s and in the 1800s, this brook was the bustling home to many mills, manufacturing everything from flour to paper to flannel. Today, the ruins of these mills are still present. Over there, You'll see, I think it's called the Twining's Mill. I guess this was the Owl Mills. We got to the bottom of Biddy and crossed a bridge over Sackett's Brook. It's too bad this is overgrown so much. This is the, the bridge. And it's a, it's a stone arch bridge. It's really cool. You know, it's one of those dry laid stone bridges that are I believe, held together by gravity. It's called Sackett's Brook Stone Arch Bridge, and it was built by a stonemason named James Otis Follett in 1906. The stones are perfectly placed together without any mortar holding them. Today, it's on the National Register of Historic Places. We continued down the road where we met a Hilo Biddy resident. He didn't know the origin of Hilo Biddy, but he told us that his neighbor, Tim, was the person to talk to. So um, I know Tim is home. I'm sure he wouldn't mind if you knocked on his door. He knows a lot of the history here. So we walked up to Tim's house. High low bitty house, and there's horses on the sign. That's right. It's a clue. You think so? We knocked on the door. And we're told that Tim was in the shower. Is he at the early end of the shower or the late end, does it seem like? He's got about 5%. When he got out of the shower, my hopes were high. First of all, what's your name? Uh, Tim Ragel. And then? Uh, nobody really knows the answer as to why it was called Hilo Bitty. But it's, it's one of those stories that's really lost in history. We don't know. But he did have his own theory about the name. And it's also an itty bitty road. It's a very, very short road. <laughs> that's all I can... the itty. That's all. And as for the horse that I saw on his address sign, that was just a coincidence. Tim collects and restores horse-drawn carriages that he sells to museums. So I bid our question asker, Michael, farewell, and I went home to do some more research. I cracked open a digital copy of The History of Putney, Vermont by Edith DeWolf. The book was published in 1953, 66 years ago. And even back then, DeWolf wrote, the origin of Hilo Biddy is not known. This book did resolve one thing, though. Remember that horse that Paul Gillis mentioned? Given the timing of this book's publication and the birth of the horse, I was able to conclude that the road was not named after the horse. So after I left town, Hilo Biddy became the historic question of the week in Putney, Vermont. The town Facebook group was alive with chatter about the road. I began calling the families who had lived on the road and anyone who might know something about the origin of the name. I talked to the historical society, the current town clerk, the previous town clerk, and the Vermont State Archives, and I kept getting the same answer. Uh, I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know a lot. I really don't remember anything about when it was named. 
Okay. The closest I came to discovering the origin was talking to Jim Dunham, who grew up on the road. He claims that when he was in fifth grade, his teacher, Inez Harlow, told him the origin of the name, but that he forgot. I wish I could remember. I really do wish I could remember. In one ear and out the other. <laughs> Most of the residents I spoke to said that they thought high-low came from the road starting high and dipping low. As for the biddy, the majority believed that it was about the old women who lived on the road. Some thought that there was a biddy at the high end and at the low end. They would get together and make their dandelion wine and talk about the neighborhood. <laughs> That's Edna Turner, who used to live on the road. Whoever the biddy was, her image remained strong in people's minds. The generation I spoke to clearly remembered the three older women that lived on Hilo Biddy when they were kids. Their names were Eva Turner, Elvira Rhodes, and Sarah Doyle. Here's Jim Dunham again, remembering Elvira. She always gave us homemade donuts for Halloween. <laughs> we always went forward to it. Around 10 years ago, the town changed the road name to Thwing Road after a mill that was located on the brook. But the residents missed the name. They organized and petitioned to change it back to Hilo Biddy. The Hilo Biddy name was just too fun to say and too beloved by all. That was independent producer Bianca Gaver for the podcast Brave Little State from Vermont Public Radio. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Twitter at Next New England. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Lucy Suchek and John Keimel. Music this week is by Todd Merrill. Good Night Blue Moon, Chris Ross in the North, Muddy Ruckus, and Francesca Blanchard. I'm John Denkowski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio. 